0: Oh, just speaking of kids, um, kids can be scared of the scr- strangest things, can't they? Uh, you don't have to have a child to hear some of their uh, wonderful little uh, fears. Um, I saw a little listicle, you know, listicles, like the little list of things that, um, short little things that you can find out about things. And there's this little listicle of uh, kids' fears on Twitter that I want to highlight a few different uh, ones on. Uh, one, little, one little child was scared that their teddy would suffocate in bed if their head went under the covers. It's just so cute and beautiful, but it's such a scary thing. Um, another child was scared that they might, if they didn't fall asleep, they might be the only person awake in the whole world, and that was a really scary idea to them. Another one was afraid that other people could see their thoughts, like speech bubbles above their heads, and when they had like a bad thought, they'd quickly check, <laughs> see that there were no speech bubbles. Uh, one child saw a, a film uh, from 1997 called Orca, and after seeing that, they were scared that a giant whale would develop, devour them while they were on a camping trip, which <laughs> is just fantastic. Uh, the last one's my favourite. Um, this one child was scared, scared that if they unscrewed their belly button, their bottom would fall off. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but it's charming. Um, as we get older, I think our fears Uh, they don't go away, but they do change. Uh, I don't have the fears of a child anymore, uh, but some things still scare me. I'm not really talking about physical threats to my health or my safety, um, but I'm scared maybe, for instance, scared of where the government might take our nation in the many years to come. Sometimes I'm scared about the world that my kids might grow up in, uh, particularly once I'm gone. Sometimes I'm scared that I'm not being a good enough father to my children or a good enough husband to my wife. But maybe the worst fear I have is when I read some of Jesus' words. In Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read a couple of verses from here. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but passages like that are really scary because these people have in some way thought that they were in with God. They thought that they were going to meet God and be with him forever. And at the last time, when it's too late, they've been turned away. What if I'm one of those people who somehow thought they were known by Jesus, but in the end they're cast out? How do I know I'm a true Christian? How do I know I'm really saved? Do you have these questions yourself? Do you ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? Does He really know me? Am I in or am I out? How can you be sure when you read passages like this that you know the answer? I think it's a really good question and I think it's a question that we really need to ask ourselves. And I think it's a question that our passage today answers very clearly. I think today, at the end of the day, you're going to be able to go away with uh, knowing for sure what a Christian looks like and knowing who is in heaven and who is not. Who knows Jesus and who does not. So I hope that today, although it may go through some really deep and, and difficult stuff, that today will give us great confidence and joy in our faith. Jesus answers this question, and uh, I'm going to deal with it in two points. My first one is, is that true disciples, true disciples are part of the true vine. True disciples are part of the true vine. So what's the true vine then? Jesus' statement begins, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser." So what is the true vine? It, it honestly seems like a really weird thing to say in our culture, doesn't it? To come out and pronounce yourself to be a vine. Uh, I don't think that's something that any of us would ever do. But in that culture, it might have even been quite shocking. It's a shocking statement to say that Jesus is the vine. See, Israel had always thought of themselves as the vine. We read it, our faith read it uh, in Psalm 80. If you you missed part of that, you can go back and read it. Um, They thought, uh, well, Israel always thought of themselves as the vine that God had brought out of Egypt... And planted in the promised land. Uh, In Psalm 80, the people at the time were then asking, What is God doing to his precious vine? God's covenant people had recently been attacked and conquered and carted off away from the promised land. And Psalm 80 is saying, God, this is your vine. You know, you nurtured it, you planted it, you were with it, you looked after it, and it grew, and and its boughs spread to the sea. It was beautiful, it was wonderful. And what are you doing now, Lord? What's happening? Why are you letting, Lord, the people that you love, the people that you own, the people who belong to you and have a relationship with you, suffer like this? because we're a beautiful vine. And vines are beautiful, aren't they? Have you ever been out um, through a winery region and you go past and you see all the, the vines all laid out and they're green and they're beautiful and it's such a lovely shade of green. A vine is a beautiful thing. In fact, uh, Israel, uh, well, at, the, at the temple, the people of God are built... Uh, or built a sculpture of a vine at the main entrance to the temple so the big main door as you go into the temple proper had had a gold vine all up and over it so this is a doorway that's about about 14 15 meters high and it's a vine that extends that high and it's made out of solid gold so I had a couple of things I wanted to um Read from there. So it says, around and above the gate, 14 metres high, is a richly carved vine created as a border and a decoration. And the branches and the the tendrils of the vine, you know how they all curl up like that? Um, And the the leaves were all made of finest gold. And then you've got bunches of fruit, and that's made of of precious stones. This is a, a vine that is is beautiful and precious, it's solid gold. The stalks of these vines, we're told, are about as long as a man. So this is a big vine that's very precious and very beautiful. And the way it would work, Herod first placed it there, he's the one who built uh, that temple. But rich and and, uh, patriotic Jews would, from time to time, add a little bit more to it. So if they had a bit of cash and they could afford to have you know, a, a leaf that was this big made out of solid gold, they would contribute that and it would be added to the vine uh, bit by bit, um, branch by branch, the vine would grow right where God lived. The people of God were symbolized by this vine, this gold sc- sculpture, because Israel belonged to God and they were connected to him. They put the two together at the temple because they are God's chosen people. And here's Jesus speaking to Jews who have seen this beautiful gold sculpture and considered it to be representing them. And he has said, You're not the vine. I am the true vine. Not you. I am the beautiful planting of the Lord. And if you want to be connected to God, treasured by God, tended to by God as you're calling for in Psalm 80, you're going to have to do it through me because I am the true vine. You are not connected, this is what Jesus is saying, you're not connected to God by virtue of being Jewish. That's not how it works. I am the source of life, I am the source of relationship to God the Father. And he says there's two types of branches. You can be one or the other. And they're they're different by by, by how they're connected to or not connected to Jesus, the vine. So the first one is branches who are for burning. One type of branch, branches who are for burning. It's in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. God, who is the gardener, takes away and burns the useless branches that are not in him. That's the first type of branch. The second is the branches that abide, the abiding branches. The other sort of people who are branches who aren't cut off but are instead tended to by the gardener, who is God the Father. Have you ever, have you ever seen someone prune a fruit tree? Uh, I've seen it done badly. <laughs> um, but we used to hire someone, not me, my parents used to hire someone every, now, every year to come in and tend to their little orchard. Uh, they had a little uh, apple orchard at the back. And pruning uh, is, is something that takes a great deal of skill and care, uh, It it takes an expert eye. The branch is is looked after because it carries next year's apple. Those branches are precious to the owner of the tree. There's two types of branches here, the ones to be burned and the ones to abide. And I know which branch I want to be. And I know which branch I'm scared of being the difference between the two is highlighted by the phrase, in him, or with the word abide. Both of those words crop up again and again and again in this passage. And it's the difference between the two. To abide, abide is a strange word, we don't use it very often anymore, but it means to live, to dwell, to lodge somewhere. It means to to abide in Jesus, to to persist, to remain, to last in relationship with him. It's asking, uh, do we make our home in him with Jesus? Do we have our life in him? And those are good questions to ask. When I uh, abide in my home, I'm surrounded by it. My home is a place I'm in regularly. I'm always there. When I go out, I come back to it. When I sit in it, everywhere I look, I see its colours. It's the place where I find relaxation and comfort. I know my home intimately. I even get used to the smell of my home. Have you ever been in somebody else's house and it smells really different, it smells funky? How do you know if your house doesn't smell like that? You can't, because you come in and you know the smell of your own home. It's a place that you used to. I could describe my home's layout to you with my eyes closed. I could draw you a map. I could tell you exactly where to find bunches of things within it, because I spend so much time in my home, I know it intimately. And the difference between the two branches is one finds its home in Jesus, And the other does not. So, is your home in Jesus? Have you made your life in Him? Do you abide with Him, drawing from Him all your strength, your nourishment, your life? Because that's the branch that stays. And that's the branch that bears fruit, which is our second point. True disciples bear fruit in keeping with the vine. True disciples bear fruit in keeping with the vine. So key to understanding this passage is seeing that abiding in Jesus' love is transformative. This is a key statement. Abiding in Jesus' love is transformative. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, makes his home in me, takes his life from me, and I in him, he, the word order is, is really weird in the ASV because it's trying to show you the emphasis. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever imbide, abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. And we understand this analogy, don't we? Uh, the branch on the tree takes its life from the vine. It has to. It's just logical. You, you couldn't um, bring the branch really, really close to the vine and expect it to bear fruit. It has to be in the vine, so it's taking its life from the vine. And the vine then produces its fruit through the branches. So there's sort of this mutual thing here going on where, where we take our life from Jesus and he produces his fruit through us. That's the way it works. A vine cannot be healthy without drawing its life from the sap in the vine. And the sap from the vine produces the fruit. Abiding. Living, dwelling with and in Jesus gives us life from Jesus and that life from Jesus will produce fruit in us. And those that don't abide in Jesus cannot produce any fruit at all because they're not taking their life from him. And in verse 2, they're taken away. They're taken away because they don't produce fruit because they're not in the vine. Now verse 3, quickly, is a bit of a case study of this. The disciples are a bit of a case study. Jesus says that they have already been made clean by Jesus' words. Now, in the original language, there's a bit of a play on words going here that's really hard to translate. The word here, made clean, is the same word for pruned that Jesus has just said. It's the same word and functions in sort of two different ways. Because the act of pruning is kind of a cleansing act, isn't it? When a a gardener comes and prunes the tree, they're cutting away the dead wood, they're cutting away the bad stuff, the the polluted stuff, so that the, the, the fruit will grow more. The words of Jesus, living with Jesus, has already done some of this work of pruning in the disciples' lives. Jesus has affected them and changed them and abiding with Jesus, living with Him, will do the same for you. Jesus guarantees it. Making your home with Him, living with Him as your home, will change you. So what is this fruit? It's a really good question. (laughs) Uh, I spent a lot of time wrestling with this. Uh, At first, when I was reading this passage, I thought the fruit was love. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? It's in line with a lot of other scripture. I thought the fruit was love because in verse 9 and verse 12, and I've written 12 again, I think I might have wrote something else, or three times we hear uh, Jesus talk about love. But then I saw in verse 10 and 12 and 14 and 17 talking about obedience. So is that the fruit? But then in verse 11 we hear Jesus talking about the joy of Jesus. Three different things, and I was quite confused between them. Which is the fruit that Jesus is talking about? And eventually, I came to the same conclusion that many others have, that the term fruit is nonspecific. Jesus isn't talking about one single thing. It's not limited to love, or to obedience, or to joy. It's everything that grows out of a life living intimately with Jesus. That's what fruit is. My definition is that fruit is simply a life dripping with Jesus. I reckon it's an excellent... (laughs) I shouldn't say that. My definition is excellent, yeah. (laughs) Got a little snort up the back there. It's good. The fruit is simply a life dripping with Jesus. When... When what you see in Jesus' life and actions and character blossoms in his people, you're seeing the fruit of Jesus growing on his branches. So this includes, and maybe is especially highlighted today, those three things I talked about. I'm going to go quickly through them. Uh, The first one is obedience. An obedience to Jesus' commands. This is in verse 10. Abiding with Jesus, living with him, creates a desire to obey Jesus. And that obedience enables us to live even more in the love of Jesus. And this is the same thing that Jesus experiences with the Father. Jesus didn't have to obey in order to be loved by the Father, but Jesus' continued obedience to the Father has fostered an ongoing relationship of love. Okay, it's, it's a bit tricky. Jesus' obedience to the Father has fostered an ongoing relationship of love. So parents and children are kind of like this. Um, I suspect that none of us um, love our children because they obey, but because your kids love you, I've written that down wrong, We don't love our kids because they obey but the obedience that they give fosters a relationship of love and grows that relationship. And our kids won't obey um, just because you tell them to, they'll obey because they love you. I know they're not perfect but if you ask them to do something for you, they'll often go, oh yeah, okay dad. Oh, can you go get me a Coke? Yeah, sure, I'll go get you one of those. And they come back. Jude is frowning because she doesn't know who I'm talking about. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but they obey often because they love you and their obedience fosters a growing and deepening relationship of love in the family. Those times when they don't obey... That doesn't end the relationship between parent and child, but it does break down the relationship between parent and child. And continued obedience, fosters that relationship. So I want to ask, are you growing in your desire to obey Jesus? Are you desiring more and more to respond to him in love? Is that triumphing over your desire to, to respond in selfishness to, your, to yourself? Are you enjoying serving your Saviour in obedience? If you are, you're bearing the fruit of Jesus. Another one is an experience of Jesus' joy. It's another type of fruit. Obedience could feel onerous, couldn't it? And sometimes it does. Especially if you are obeying someone you didn't love. But Jesus' obedience to the Father is something that brings Him joy. And it should bring us joy too. Uh, I used to love working with my dad, especially when I was a really little kid. Um, I'd get bored and fed up from time to time. Uh, But I loved going on jobs with my dad. Uh, Because I loved him, I loved working with him. And he'd tell me to run off and get this little part and i just feel so privileged that I was involved in his work and that I could go and find it and bring it to him as a help to him. It probably wasn't a help to him, but I loved doing it anyway because I thought it was. I wonder, is there a pleasure in your life springing up from obedience to God, to Jesus? Is there joy when you set aside your desires for His? Do you experience the same joy in obeying the Son As the Son feels obeying the Father. If you do, you're bearing the fruit of Jesus. The last type of fruit that Jesus talks about is a love for one another, as in verse 12. We're again called to mirror Jesus' love in our love for others. And that's a big deal, mirroring Jesus' love, because Jesus' love is radical. I don't know if you picked it up in this passage. Verse 13. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Dot, dot, dot. Jesus is headed towards the cross. It's just a couple of chapters away. And he says, Love as I have loved you. There's no greater love than... Than the sacrificial love of dying for your friends. You're my friends, I'm about to die for you. Love each other like I love you. That's that's just huge. I, I don't know if I could die for my friends. You guys, most of you are, are good friends. <laughs> I don't honestly know if I could die for you. But that might not be the point. Jesus' point is his love is greatest. And abiding in him will produce fruit that mimics his sacrificial love on a daily basis. Again, a parent does this naturally for their children. A parent will give up their time and their energy and their money for their kids. A parent will go forego sleep, lots of sleep, good, beautiful, lovely sleep, a parent will set aside for their kids because they love them. A Christian will give up their time and their energy and their money for their brothers and sisters in the church because as they've grown to love Jesus, they've grown to love what he loves. If that is you, you are beginning to evidence the fruit of Jesus. These things are what it looks like to be dripping with Jesus, dripping with the fruit of the true vine. And this is one of the main proofs that you truly belong to him. Our feelings are often subjective, aren't they? I struggle to know if what I feel is reality. We can feel good, great, wonderful, everything's going well, and not have a real relationship with Jesus. We can feel awful day after day after day, and yet God is with us. You might be in the midst of deep, dark depression that has been lasting for years, and yet if you are bearing fruit, you can be sure you belong to Him you might be filled with happiness and light. Everything's great. But if you are not seeing the fruit of Jesus in your life, you should be very worried that you have never truly known him and that you are not in the vine. We tell if our faith is real by the fruit we bear, not by our experience of life. If you're not bearing fruit, yes, you should understand that you might not be saved. And that should be something that you examine very closely. But if that's the case, don't work harder. Don't try harder to produce fruit. Verse 5, the end of verse 5 says, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. The only way you are going to produce fruit is to be grafted into the vine at the most intimate level possible. If you are bearing fruit, if you are bearing fruit, you are showing that you are connected with Jesus, just as the disciples were. And can I encourage you, if you're seeing this fruit, that your salvation is sure that you belong to him that he loves you, that he will preserve you and guard your inheritance forever. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that Jesus is so clear with what the Christian life looks like. Thank you that he shows us and gives us tools to assess whether we belong to him or not. Thank you, Lord, that he is the true vine And that by belonging to him, by abiding in him, we gain life. Lord, we pray for anyone here who still might be unsure. We pray that by your spirit, they might be clear on whether they're producing fruit or not, whether they belong to you or not. We pray for those people who do belong to you, that they might See their fruit that might be encouraged by it and that might continue in obedience and joy and love. And we pray for those people who currently are not abiding in Jesus, that you would perform a mighty work of your spirit and graft them into your son so that they might produce fruit and fruit that leads to eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.